Warning, some things in our podcast may not be suitable for everyone. We talk about cults and murders, and due to the nature of our podcast, may use harsh language at times. Viewer's discretion is advised. And also, we can't pronounce anything. Hi everyone, welcome to Cults and Crime, a true crime podcast covering cults, crime, and everything in between. I'm one of your hosts, Jamie. And I'm your other host, Nicole. So last week we gave you guys some clues, and you guessed it. Nicole, what are we covering? All right, guys. So this case is going to be a fan favorite for all of our cults and crime fans. This is a case for anybody who loves to speculate wildly. A case where Brian Schaefer walked into a bar and never left. Growing up in Pinkerton, Ohio, Brian Schaefer knew exactly what he wanted to do when he grew up. He wanted to be a doctor. He was really well liked in his little small town community and was described as a very good-looking, genuine guy, standing at six foot two with brown hair that was cut in the same style as Tom Cruise. Pretty much an all-American boy. And yes, I'm talking about Tom Cruise when he was cute in the, um, oh gosh, what movie was he in? Mission, oh, I'm talking about the Tom Cruise haircut when he was in Mission Impossible. I am trying to make a mental picture right now, but I cannot make it because I can't imagine Tom Cruise ever being attractive. Really? Did you not find him attractive in, um, what was that other movie? The Top Gun. You don't think he was cute in Top Gun? I thought he was cute in Top Gun. I think it's because I know he's a Scientologist that just like, nah. All right. Well, this guy was considered very attractive. I also agree he's pretty cute, but moving on. <laughs> After graduating with his undergrad in microbiology with high marks, he set off to Ohio State University College of Medicine in 2004. Sadly enough, during his second semester there, his mother passed away of myoplasia, which is a form of cancer that affects immature bone marrow cells, not allowing them to grow into full, healthy bone cells. His mother's death was really hard for Brian. He was very close to his parents and especially his mom. He tried to keep a brave face and not be affected, but a lot of his friends had noticed the change in Brian. He wasn't as happy as he once was, and he became very serious, even more serious about his studies. And he really started to lean on his girlfriend at the time. Her name was Alice Wagner, who was a fellow two-year med student of his. She was a pretty blonde and obviously very smart if she got into med school. Real smart and real hardworking. Yes, 100%. And their relationship was going really well. They'd actually met during med school, and it was thought that Brian was planning on proposing to her during their spring break trip to Miami. See, Brian loved the beach and really any tropical location. He found a lot of peace with the ocean and any tropical music as well, such as Jimmy Buffett. And he'd even discussed starting a band playing, guess what, Jimmy Buffett. That's so weird because this is a white kid, right? Yes, he's a white kid, Jamie. That doesn't mean he can't enjoy the music. I'm just imagining this white kid, like, playing on some bongo drums, being like, don't worry about a thing. (laughs) Well, you know, for me, I just love this little tidbit about him. Like, he's this hardworking genius doctor, but also he wants to play in, like, basically a reggae band. March 31st rolls around, and Brian finished up his classes, which, by the way, he had straight A's. Which is really impressive for med school. Well, like, don't even look at my GPA and my transcripts because there's missing maybe one or two A's. (laughs) Nicole's running a straight 2.0 GPA over here being like, yeah, like one or two A's. A little better. 
A little better than 2.0 GPA. 2.01. Send me help, please. Help me. <laughs> to celebrate the end of the semester and Brian's amazing grades, Brian's dad, Randy, took him out to a steak dinner. During the dinner, his dad noticed that Brian was exhausted and looked really run down. He'd been pulling several nighters to study for his finals and was super stressed out, but he had promised his friend William, aka Clint Florence, he would meet him for a night out to celebrate, even with his father's protest. He went home, got ready, and made his way over to the Ugly Tuna Saluna at 9 p.m. And while they were there, they took two shots each. And then they went to another bar, and another bar, and another bar, and each bar they went to, they had two shots each. Which I can safely say would mean that they're probably pretty intoxicated at this point. He had made a quick call to his girlfriend Alexis, who would return home from Toluda to visit family before they went to their trip to Miami before heading to the next bar. They visited several more bars, working their way along the area district. Each bar they went to, Clinton Brian had again two shots. Just after midnight, they met up with one of Clint's friends, Meredith. He gave them a ride back to the Ugly Tuna and joined them for their last round at around 1.15 a.m. And this is where Brian got separated from the group. Both Meredith and Clinton attempted to call him, but he didn't answer. They left the bar around two, assuming Brian was just heading home to his apartment. And from somebody that like has gone out before, <laughs> you get separated from your friends all the time. So, I wouldn't personally ever leave one of my friends if I didn't know where they were, but that stuff happens all the time. Well, I think especially if you're a guy, like guys don't think like women do. Women are, you know, I have to watch my friend's drinks. I have to watch my friend's bags. My friend, if my friend's going home, I have to know who she's going home with. It better be someone that I know or else she's not going home with that guy. Yeah, totally. Where guys are like, oh, high five, dude, you're getting laid. That girl has a knife in her purse? Cool. Oh, she said she's going to murder you? Dope, man. Dope. But it's true, though. <laughs> oh, you say you're an ex-murderer? Cool, girl. So Meredith and Clint went home without any worry about where Brian would be. But later on that weekend, Brian's dad and Alexis had attempted to get hold of Brian, but he wasn't answering. And on Monday, when he didn't show up for his flight, Alexis and his father decided to file a missing person. The police started their search of the ugly tuna. That was the last known location of Brian, after all. And then they extended the search to the area around the Ugly Tuna. The area around the Ugly Tuna, by the way, was a high crime rate area. So the bar and the surrounding area had a bunch of cameras everywhere that ran continuously. Police reviewed the tapes and they saw Brian. Just around 1.55 a.m., Brian was seen outside the Ugly Tuna with two girls appearing to say goodbye. They returned to the bar, which is very important to note, it's five minutes until closing time. However, they have no video footage of him ever exiting. That's kind of weird. How many entrances or exits can there possibly be? So the building itself only had two exits, the very front with the camera and a service door, which led out to his construction site. This construction site, by the way, would have been really hard to cross sober and almost impossible drunk. The police decided to check out camera footage from the surrounding area again, hoping that maybe they just missed Brian, but he had disappeared without a trace. The police expanded their search again to outside the Ugly Tuna. They searched dumpsters and alleys, asking nearby residents for tips. They also posted several missing persons flyers. The flyers had a picture of Brian with a picture of his tattoo. This tattoo, by the way, was a stick figure logo 
from the cover of Alive by Pearl Jam, which was one of Brian's favorite bands. The police also checked credit card activity and there was zero. They searched Brian's apartment where everything was untouched, the bed still made and car still in his parking space. The police started interviewing and questing lie detector tests for anybody that was with Brian that day, including Brian's dad. Meredith and Brian's dad passed as did all the others. However, Brian's friend Clint refused a polygraph test. That's one of those things where it could really make someone look guilty even if they're not. Yeah. But, you know, it's like it looks guilty when you don't take it either. It's kind of like a double-edged sword. And then also, just a tidbit, the two girls that Brian was seen in the camera footage was identified and they were questioned by police as well, but they were never asked to take a polygraph and they were never considered suspects. Brian's girlfriend never gave up looking for Brian. She would call his cell phone every single night before bed. Every night it went straight to voicemail until September. Every night it went straight to voicemail until September when she called and heard three rings. Alexis was overjoyed on her MySpace page. She wrote, I kept calling him to hear it purely because it was one of the best sounds I've ever heard even if no one picked up. They had the phone pinged to a cell tower in Hillard, which is about 14 miles away from Columbus, Ohio. Many tips would come in, but none of them would be a lead to Brian. Brian's dad even enlisted a psychic to find Brian and was told his body was near a bridge pier. Brian's dad and brother and other citizens bought waders and spent much of their free time searching the Olentangy River that flows through Columbus adjacent to the campus, but they never found anything. The police did have one suspect in mind. Was it Mr. I don't want to take a polygraph? Actually, no. So, the smiley face killer was a serial killer who targeted college-aged men and dumped their bodies in the water of Midwestern states between 1990 and 2010. At first, they thought to be drownings. Later, they were confirmed to be murders. He got his name by drawing a smiley face where the bodies were dumped. This would make Brian the only victim of this serial killer that his body wasn't discovered. And the Ohio Police Department did research this and rejected any connection to Brian's case. Sadly, in September of 2008, Brian's dad passed away. He was out working in his yard during a windy day when a tree branch hit him, killing him instantly. In his online obituary, there was a note. The note said, To Dad, Love Brian. Which of course got a lot of attention. Was he still alive? Was he still in the area? Police tracked down the IP address for the person who wrote the obituary board to a library in Franklin County and determined that it was just a hoax. After Brian's dad's death, Clint's attorney, Neil Rosenberg, decided to contact a private investigator. This private investigator name was Don Corbett. He agreed to help try and find Brian. He then claimed that the Columbus Police Department believed Brian was still alive. The Lantern, which is Ohio State's newspaper, disclosed the exchange, and I'll quote them. If Brian is alive, which is what I'm led to believe after speaking with the detectives involved, then it is Brian and not Clint who is causing his family pain and hardship, Rosenberg wrote. Brian should come forward and end this, end quote. He also gave an explanation for why Clint didn't take the polygraph test. He had simply given all the information he could to police and didn't think it was needed. But Brian's brother wasn't convinced. The last surviving family member of Brian mentioned he had always felt that Clinton knew something that he wasn't talking to them about. He does think there's a small possibility that Brian is still alive, but he also says that if Brian ran away, 
then Clint knows information about it. I feel like they're putting a lot of pressure on Clint. He lost a friend too. Yeah, Brian's former girlfriend Alexa thinks Clint knows something as well, but doesn't believe that Brian's still alive. She could imagine him just walking away. I feel like back in the day, that was police officers' go-to. When someone went missing and they didn't really have any clues, they just assumed that they ran away. Well, this disappearance was in 2008, so it was pretty recent. I don't necessarily want to say that the police just assumed that he ran away. I think without a lot of evidence behind it, they just have no evidence to say that he even went missing. In 2014, Columbus police said that they were still getting tips on the case, but so far none had been useful. Some of them were a little far-fetched. There was an alleged sighting in Sweden, a phone call from one in Michigan who claimed Brian was her waiter, and there was even an anonymous tip claiming that they knew where the body was, but none of these leads had checked out. And they'd even reviewed the tape again and again. And one of the detectives had said that with 100% certainty that Brian did not leave the ugly tuna. Police then said that they had three theories on the case, but they didn't disclose any of them. So Jamie, are you ready to speculate wildly with me? You know I am. So I'll tell you my theories on the case, and then you can tell me what you think, okay? Okay. So my theory is that Brian did not walk out of the ugly tuna. He didn't walk out the front door. My theory is that Brian didn't walk out of the front door, but rather the back, into that construction site I had said earlier. And after a long night of drinking, he could have thought it was faster just to cut across the dangerous site to get home. This is where he fell into the pit, and which was filled with cement just days later. And it would have been very hard for his body to be discovered before the cement was poured. And other people do speculate that the company hid the body in an attempt to avoid a possible lawsuit. I guess that's possible. You know, companies are always trying to cover themselves, but... I'm thinking, like, what a gigantic lawsuit it would have been. All right. Theory two. Brian slipped past security that night, and that's where he was met with foul play. The area where the ugly tuna is isn't a safe place to be walking around at night. I saw one post that mentioned that a lot of the businesses in the area were run by the mob and the crime rate is super high. He could have attempted to be walking home when he was lured away from the bar. Maybe it was somebody he knew who had ill intent. Or maybe it was just a stranger seeing him walk down the street. Maybe somebody offered him a ride. I would support this idea because none of the security cameras they pulled had any trace of Brian walking. This person killed and dumped Brian's body, keeping his cell phone possibly because it had evidence on it that could lead to the killer, or he had turned it off so it could not be tracked. Then turning it on six months later, possibly trying to delete that information, and that's when Alexis had happened to call. Did he have any enemies? Was there anyone that would have any reason to hurt him? So by all accounts, Brian didn't have any enemies. He was very well liked in the community, but I find it very interesting that that phone had been turned back on, and I have to wonder who turned it back on. Did anyone check, ever check the girlfriend out? Yes, they checked her out, but she wasn't even in the city. Like I said earlier, she was visiting family right before their trip to Miami. I know, but maybe she had like maybe she thought he was going to break up with her, and she had like a friend do it. I don't know. Well, again, by all accounts, like they were planning on he was planning on proposing to her on their trip to Miami. Well, by whose account? Her, his friends, her, his father, and her. They all seemed to think that he was going to propose to their in Miami. So the third and final theory, which I have a hard time with, is that he simply walked away. 
Maybe the death of his mother, coupled with the stress of med school and a possible proposal to his girlfriend, was just too much for Brian. Brian had never withdrawn any money from his account or used his credit cards since the night of the disappearance. If he was planning on starting a new life, wouldn't he need money? Also, everyone seems to agree with him, with my thought process that his relationship with his girlfriend was going really well. Why would he suddenly have a change of heart? Well, maybe he found out a deep, dark secret about her. Maybe she had ch- So he just decided to get up and leave? Well, yeah. You know, his mom had just passed away. What else was he staying for? His bright medical career, his father, his brother, his friends. Like, maybe somebody, you found out something bad happened, and you're like, no, I... I can't do this anymore. I have to leave. And then you start going on the road and then you realize like it's too late to go back now. Yeah, and that could be the case. I don't know. I just have a hard time believing that Brian would just leave everything and walk away. And a lot of his family members agree the same. Yeah, it doesn't seem really likely. Yeah, but a lot of people seem to think that that's the theory because he did just slip away. So one of the theories is that Clint had helped Brian start his new life. And that's why everyone's so suspicious of Clint. They think that Clint maybe had given him a jacket, a change of shirt, you know, a change of a shirt to help him sneak away from the security cameras. So when Clint came out, was he wearing different clothing or did he have a bag with him that could have clothing in it going into the bar? No. But and that's also, just one of the theories. But you know what seems weird? Getting really, really drunk before you decide to make your big breakaway. See, that's what I feel as well. Like, it just, to me, it just seems like a night of fun. It doesn't necessarily seem like this is a really good opportunity to me, for me to run away. Well, if anything, it seems like a wor- the worst opportunity to run away. Let me just get really drunk first, because that's definitely when I'm going to be the least emotional and able to, you know, navigate leaving a city that I'm comfortable with to go Lord knows where. Yeah, and he, you know, his car was still at his house. He, again, hadn't touched his credit cards, and there was no abnormal transactions taken where he had taken out a lot of money. Which he, you know, wasn't super rich, but they he had enough money in his account that I wouldn't want to leave it behind. Well, I wouldn't want to leave... If you're starting a new life, I wouldn't want to leave any money behind, you know? Yeah, take what you can get. Yeah, who knows how you're going to get a job later on. Yeah, well, if we believe the odd, far-fetched tips that came in that he's in Switzerland... Or that he's busting tables at some diner what, in Michigan. Switzerland? Yeah, I told you. Why Why Switzerland? Um, a lot of police tips have came in, like I stated earlier. Um, one of them was the sighting in Sweden, and then the other one was a lady in Michigan who said Brian was her waiter. Okay, lady. So, you know, there's just a lot of theories out there about what happened to Brian. One of them, which I almost didn't even want to add into the podcast, is they think the wait staff killed him. Why? Because he never left. The, they, he never left the bar, so they think that the people at the bar had accidentally murdered him in some fashion, and that they had secretly hidden his body until the next day and then dragged it out. There is zero cooperation and zero evidence supporting this. But I don't want our podcasters to do extra research and ask why I didn't say anything. Yeah, I get that. Between Brian's disappearance and Brian's father's passing, he had joined the families of other missing persons in Ohio and lobbying the state's lawmakers to pass a bill. This bill established a statewide protocol for such cases. At the time of Brian's disappearance, it was left up to individual departments on how to handle the cases. 
and some parents had felt the investigation into the relative disappearance had suffered as a result. By the time of Randy's death, which by the way is Brian's father, the law had passed. That's everything I have for this case. If anything unfolds or there's any updates, we will let you know. But next week we have something extra special for you. Usually we go cult and crime, cult and crime. But Jamie's going to be on a plane heading my way for Thanksgiving. So, in the meantime, I have an extra special guest to go over an extra special case with me. Are you ready, guys? I'm going to be talking about Alex Rodriguez, a prison inmate who, during a riot, suffered a brutal murder. So we'll see you next Monday if you want to guess who my special guest is. You're more than welcome to, but you will not guess I can almost guarantee it. See you Monday, guys. Hey, cult and crime fans. If you like listening to us discuss charismatic leaders and husbands who definitely did it, then one of the easiest ways for you to support us is by subscribing to us on whatever listening platform you're using and giving us a five-star review. We love all of our listeners. Production by Jamie. Production and editing by Nicole. Our intro music is Wrong by Dan Henning. Our background music is In Albany, New York by the 129ers.